This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Gnosis, Ego, and Love, recorded January 15th, 2005, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, this morning I thought I would respond to a series of questions left in the question box by Bill Carter. Where's Bill? There he is. Yeah, okay. So we'll just start with these and see where we get, because I think these cover a lot of ground, and we can just really give sort of brush strokes. But if you want to stop, you know, in the middle here and uh, talk more about a particular aspect of something, we can do that. This is very informal, so don't be shy. So here's the first one. Please explain enlightenment, awakening, liberation from a personal realization that is applicable. Realizing true enlightenment is beyond words, but words do point. So, are you saying to explain this from a personal point of view? Is that the gist of this, Bill? Uh, yeah. How? how uh, <clears throat> yeah, from a personal. Uh, from my own experience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, experiential. Yes. Uh, well, good. Uh, first of all, <laughs> we are uh, involved in a paradox here because. <clears throat> Uh, enlightenment is the realization that there is no person. So you cannot really give a personal uh, <laughs> exposition in an ultimate sense. But I know what you're talking about, and you are right. Words cannot capture this, so we just do the best we can, and we recognize that words are just really fingers pointing to the moon, as the Buddhists say. So with that understanding, we can proceed. So first of all, let me tell you that in my experience... Enlightenment was unlike anything else that ever happened. And that's a big clue here, because one of the ways that we explain things to people that haven't experienced them is we say, well, something is like something else. We use a comparison. So if you've never had a mango, I could say, well, wow, mango, let's see, it's, it's like a peach, but it's got a smoother texture, and it's uh, more tart, and so... It's not a peach, but at least we're in the ballpark. It's more like a peach than a grapefruit, for instance, right? But unfortunately, enlightenment isn't like anything. So there's nothing to compare it to. So this is one of the clues that if your mind is cooking up an idea of enlightenment based on something wonderful that happened to you one time, it ain't it. Whatever you can imagine ain't it. Then, having said that, one of the ways to describe it is to say what it isn't. So, enlightenment is, first of all, not conceptual knowledge, or gnosis, I should say. The same thing, gnosis is just a more technical term here. Gnosis is a Greek term that means highest knowledge, direct realization of reality. So, gnosis is not conceptual. And, in fact, the Buddhists talk about a non-conceptual realization or non-conceptual insight. So this is very important. It's beyond a kind of knowledge that we can think about. Mystics often talk about it in contrast as being an experience because that's normally what we think of as in contrast to intellectual knowledge. Well, we have experiential knowledge. So I might say something like... uh, Last summer, Jennifer and I went to Spain. We went to Madrid. We'd read about Madrid before we went, and so we had some intellectual knowledge of Madrid. But when we got there, 
then we could say, oh, well, I know some of Madrid anyway. You know, I've been there. But strictly speaking, even though you'll read mystics talk about its experience, strictly speaking, enlightenment realization is not even experiential knowledge. On two scores. First of all, experiential knowledge fades. So I am not experiencing Madrid now. So I say, oh yeah, I know Madrid. I've experienced Madrid. Well, you know, things are changing the world so fast. If I go back to Madrid, uh, there'll be little changes. If I go back in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, as some of you have gone back to your hometowns or whatever, it's changed completely. Your experiential knowledge was no longer valid. It's always changing. Experience is always ephemeral. It's always changing. And this is not ephemeral. It doesn't always change. And normally, experiential knowledge is always structured dualistically. It's structured as a dichotomy between self and world, or I and other. So when I say, I know Madrid, either because I've read about it or because I've been there, I have this experience of an I and another. And so I know the other. So all of our experience basically is structured this way, our normal experience, and this is precisely what enlightenment cuts through. What it shows you is that this dualistic experience of the world is false. It's a delusion. And so we've been living in a delusion all this time. So it's neither conceptual knowledge nor is it experiential knowledge. So if we want to be quite technical about it, we can talk about a third way of knowing, which, for instance, my teacher, Dr. Wolf, talked about. A third way of knowing, realization, enlightenment, a third way of knowing things. So this is the mystery part of mysticism. You know, 90% of mysticism is not mysterious. This is the part that is mysterious. It is the true mystery. And the value of knowing this is, as I said earlier, so you're not fooled by something less. So be patient. And the mind tries to construct what it might be. My mind did on my path. I had these ideas that realization was like a curtain would part. And I would see the platonic forms standing behind all the world, you know, something like that, you know. So that's kind of what I was looking for. And if you have some idea of what it's supposed to be and you're looking for that, you are looking in the wrong place. You're barking up the wrong tree. That's an obstacle. It's better to just recognize you can't know. And you will never know. It's not like afterwards, now you intellectually know. No, you don't. What you know is, wow, that's it, you see. The mind can't know this, the thinking mind. So, that's the negative way of putting it. Uh, We can say, again, merely as pointers, some positive things. What then does realization, enlightenment, gnosis, what does it reveal? Well, it reveals a non-dual reality. And it reveals this reality precisely because it is a perception that transcends thought. And thought is what creates this filter of imaginary boundaries, distinctions that overlays our experience of the world. Not just I and other, but then there are all these multiple things out there. So when that's pierced through, 
the reality, the truth is, well, the world isn't made up of a lot of multiple things, and it's not made up of I and other. This is an imaginary structure. It's something that the mind thinks up and superimposes on the world. That doesn't mean the mind then just stops imagining boundaries and distinctions. The mind continues to imagine boundaries and distinctions, but it recognizes that they're imaginary. That's the key here, see? Yes? Does it also, uh, does enlightenment uh, help to understand the true meaning of time and space as well? Yes, that they don't exist. (laughs) They are imaginary. Now, some of this stuff you can go and examine on your own. That is a practice of inquiry. And one of the ways you get to the place where the mind starts to let go of its preconceived notions about the world, its concepts, its dualistic concepts, is through a process of inquiry. So you don't just have to take a mystic's word for this. You can start investigating. So, just as an example, you mentioned time. You want to understand time? It's wonderful. Go look for time. Anybody can do this. Go look for it. What is it? Sit down with a watch or a clock. See? This is going 46, 47... 48. Presumably it's counting something. Presumably it's counting something called seconds. Well, where are you going to find the seconds? I I can see this changing. I can count too. Okay, so what am I counting here? They say seconds are going by. I don't see any seconds going by. We talk about a past, a present, and a future. Where's the line between the present and the past? Right now in our experience, is there some line that experience spills over like a waterfall, you know, it comes to this point and just drops off? No. So you can go investigate, you see. What you come up with, it's amazing. You can't find any time. So you can start to understand what mystics are talking about. Then if you're a meditator, you turn your attention to the thought of time. And you start to see, wait a minute, this is a thought. It's very useful, by the way. But it's only an imaginary distinction. It's not real. It's not part of my experience. And so you start to pull apart the imaginary overlay from the naked experience. And that's how you get an opening into a spiritual path, one way, and a spiritual practice. So those questions are wonderful to ask. They're the questions that lead you to ultimately see that it's all like this. It's all like time. It's all a wonderful work of fiction. And I say wonderful. It's nothing wrong with it. Just we have to recognize what it is, what is going on. So this business of saying realization, enlightenment, gnosis reveals that the cosmos, the world, everything is non-dual. Now, you see, that's great, except notice we're already in a paradox. Because if we think of it as a non-dual as opposed to duality, we're still stuck in duality. We can't talk about this ultimately. Do, do you get it? What is, what is non-dual that also includes duality? It's a paradox. This is why so many mystical teachings, they end in these riddles, these paradoxes. And it drives people crazy. And then some people start to doubt mystics. Maybe they're just you know, trying to pull the wool over our eyes, doing uh, what uh, you know, one teacher calls the Advaita shuffle, where <laughs> you can't pin them down on anything. You know? 
But it's true. The ultimate truth cannot be put into words. Every time we try to put it into words, we're drawing some boundary, some distinction. So we can just sort of point to this. And then this business that you are not a separate self. Again, this is something you can start to investigate by saying, well, where is really the boundary between I and other? Where can I really find that boundary? You know, you can start with thought experiments the way scientists do. So you breathe in air. I breathe it in. At what point does it become me? Is there a line that crosses again, some line that becomes me? I breathe it out. I mean, am I really separate from the air? And we can go from there, do you know? Am I separate from sunlight? Though the sunlight went out, I'd be gone an instant. Now, I'm not saying that mysticism is some sort of uh, very sophisticated science, but this is why earlier Vip said, you know, one of the things about the center is to show that a scientific approach to the world, not scientism or not being stuck with a, a materialist view of the world, but taking a scientific approach and taking a mystical approach aren't that different. We're trying to look into our experience. What is our naked experience? Scientists love to claim that what is different about their project is empiricism. They rely on experience. They don't just rely on theories. No matter how beautiful a theory, if it doesn't match experience, well, the theory has to go. Well, mystics do the same thing, except they really are super empiricists. Don't trust any thought you have. Go look at the experience. <coughs> So this sense of this I in here is false. There is no I in here. And that is tremendously liberating. If there's no I in here, I don't have to be frightened of death. No one is going to die here. That doesn't mean that this body doesn't have its built-in program of, you know, when times of danger, releasing adrenaline that shoots through it and, you know, alerts it. But... That does not have to be experienced as fear. That can be experienced as quite thrilling, actually. And everything that happens to us, quote, unquote, instead of seeing the world in terms of, is it going to enhance me or is it going to hurt me? And then that governing our whole life is an appreciation of what's happening. There's no me to be enhanced or hurt, but there is a dance to perform. So it completely alters our experience of the world at the most fundamental level. It's not just a cosmetic change. So I, I'm trying to get to this idea, what does it mean for you personally? And because you recognize the boundary between I and other is imaginary, you could either say, I don't exist, or you could say, I am everything. And they're both the same thing. And so there's a, a sense of union or merging with the divine, with something greater, with the whole cosmos. Many, many traditions, particularly uh, more bhakti ones, talk about union with God, union with the divine. That's the goal. That's the same goal as Gnosis. You don't actually get to union. You discover there was always union. You discover this was always true. You discover that if you are a worshiper of God, the line that separated you from God doesn't exist. That's why some mystics say outrageous things. You know, I'm God. 
like Jesus. They get in big trouble in uh, certain traditions when they say that. They don't mean the ego is God. They mean there's no separation. Everything is God. So who else could I be? So it's not like I'm God and you poor people have to wait until you become God. No. It's, <laughs> all of this is God. All of it is a divine self-disclosure, as Ibn Arabi, one of my favorite Sufi mystics, says. Everything is a divine self-disclosure. Everything is a form of the divine, appearing and disappearing like waves on an ocean. So, again, the closest word to come to it, this is actual experience. This isn't an idea. This is like, you know, sitting in your garden and, and looking out, and there's the fence, and there are the trees, and there are the bushes, and there are the flowers, and there are the weeds, by the way, you know, and the snails and the slugs. And they're all forms of the divine. They're all waves of God. That doesn't mean you can't get rid of the slugs and protect your lettuce, especially if you're farming and you're feeding people. God doesn't mind. God makes more slugs. (laughs) So actually, this goes to the next question. Explain ego. Okay. (laughs) Ego, uh, used by mystics, is first of all not the way the Freudians devised, where you have the overall psyche and then it has components like ego and id and things like that. So when mystics use ego and when you see that term used as a translation of Sanskrit words and so forth, it just means that simple fundamental sense of being a separate self. In fact, the word ego, etymologically, it goes all the way back to uh, Sanskrit, to aham, which is related to Adam, which came through Persia. So when you read the story of Adam and Eve, you think Adam's the name of someone. Adam means self. So it's the first self. How did the first self come about? How did the first self start experiencing suffering and death? That's what the story of Adam and Eve is all about. And this story tells you. It's right there contained in the story. Adam and Eve came into conflict with God through eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of duality. So they ate of the fruit of that tree, and then they felt in conflict and separated from God. They felt shame, and they went and hid from God. They used to walk with God in the cool of the evening. Now they're going and hiding. You know, God isn't hidden from us. We've hidden ourselves from God. And it's right there in that story. And then what is that? They've disobeyed God. They're in conflict with reality. If you're in conflict with reality, you're going to suffer. I mean, that's something, you know, children start to find out early in life. Fire burns. If you put your hand in the fire, you're going to suffer. So it's the same principle. As long as we're living in a delusionary world, an unreal world, we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer suffering and death, which are the wages of sin. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They didn't actually get kicked out. They seemed to get kicked out. We're all walking around in the Garden of Eden to this day. We just don't know it. So ego is this sense of separate self. Now, there are a couple of things about ego that, again, you go investigate, explore, look at. First of all, 
ego, even though it feels often so solid and definite and real, if you watch in your life carefully, and if you study other cultures and stuff, you see it's quite flexible. If you study other cultures, you see that other people don't draw the boundary around I the same way that we tend to in this culture. They'll draw it to include certain things or exclude certain things. So, for instance, if you're walking along the street at night or something and you hear an owl call out to you and say, Paul, Paul, you think, oh, that's just my imagination. You own that in a certain sense. That's on the inside of the boundary. The owl isn't really calling me. If you are a Greenland Eskimo paddling out there in a canoe and a shark calls you, guess what? That's outside. That's a spirit helper. You can go read a Joan Halifax's book, an account just of this. Ayu was his name. I think it was Ayu. Uh, he was out fishing in his kayak in the shark call. And he was astonished. Not because the shark called him, but because sharks don't usually travel that far north in these waters. <laughs> the fact that shark called him was, in his culture, I mean, just very acceptable. Lots of people have spirit helpers, and the shark was offering to be a spirit helper and became his spirit helper and gave him advice. This is outside the boundary of I. You, you get what I'm talking about? If your neighbor was getting advice like how to play the stock market from the owl, you would say, oh, that's very interesting. And you might talk to his <laughs> wife about it. Maybe you should see a doctor or something. So different cultures draw this boundary differently. But then even in our own experience, there's sometimes when you've done something wrong publicly or made a fool of yourself and you get very self-conscious and that boundary seems really solid. You really feel cut off. And you can even feel cut off from close family and friends. Let's say you do something really stupid at a, a Christmas party. Do you know that feeling you get? Everybody's looking at you and you just want to <laughs> crawl under a rock someplace. And then other times you can lose a sense of self. You know, that's what entertainment's about, going to sporting events is about, playing sports yourself or, you know, dancing or singing or doing something artistic. You get involved and you lose sense of self and you lose sense of time, by the way. There's another clue about time. When I was a very young man, I was a photographer's assistant uh, in New York. And one of the advantages of being a photographer's assistant, you got to use all this wonderful darkroom equipment. And I was at the time, an aspiring photographer. So the pay was terrible, but I mean, you got the free run of this studio and the uh, developing equipment and all that. So I would stay late and I'd work on my own stuff. And I'd go in there and, you know, hours would go by and I'd be so absorbed in developing and printing the, the pictures. I'd just lose all track of that. I'd lose track of myself. I'd lose track of time. Have you ever had that experience happen? You know, you're totally absorbed in something. Now, it's interesting. Also, you can start to observe what is happier when you have a very strong sense of self or when you have no sense of self. <clears throat> See, this is the point. Mystics are not talking about some wooey reality off there in the heavens that you're eventually going to get to. You know, you're going to meditate hard and you're going to go to nirvana and there won't be anything like this. No, it's the reality of here and now. And so there are clues all over the place. It shines through all over the place if we just pay attention, if we get out of our heads for a little bit and pay attention. And one of the great obstacles, and that's the other thing about ego, <laughs> ego is the obstacle, the fundamental obstacle 
to the realization of this non-dual truth. Obviously, if you are experiencing yourself as something separate, ego, if I am an ego, then I cannot realize the non-duality of everything, by definition. So it's this great obstacle. And part of what makes it such a difficult obstacle to overcome is because we think we are a separate self, we think that self is the most precious thing in the world. Let's face it. There are moments perhaps in your life, especially if you have kids, where there are a moment where you would give up your life for your kid's life. But normally speaking, 99% of the time, you are the most precious thing there is. Uh, you might wish it were different, but that's the truth. <laughs> and so you do everything to hang on to this. So the demand of a spiritual path is let go of it. And this let go is... You know, it's tricky itself. Who's doing the letting go and all that? But never mind, the demand of the path is constantly let go a little bit, relax a little bit, you know what I mean? That's where love and compassion comes in, which we'll talk about in a minute. So the more you can realize that, wait a minute, this hang on to the self is the cause of the suffering, the more willing you are to start to let go. And the more you realize that letting go and selflessness is the gateway to happiness, the more you're willing to go in that direction. It comes out of your own experience. You know, that's why teachers can get up and teach till the uh, cows come home about love and compassion, surrendering self, and all sounds wonderful. But you won't ever do it until you start to discover in your own experience, hey, guess what? This is a big secret. Nobody knows this, but it's better to give than to receive. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's true. It's better for you. It's a paradox, again. <laughs> Okay, so... Um, can I ask one? Sure, yes, you can. Um, it's, I read somewhere that the idea of a self or an ego arises in order to sort of explain... It's, it's sort of the mind's way of explaining what's going on. Like if... Well, to put it briefly, in dreamless sleep, there's no ego because there's nothing there to respond to. But you wake up in the morning and you maybe you feel the pillow. So... Your mind creates the image of pillow to explain what that feeling is. And at the same time that happens, isn't the mind also saying, oh, there's somebody here that's lying on the pillow, or there's a body, or there's a self. But just as the name pillow arises to explain what's happening there, the self arises to explain who it's happening to. Exactly right. Just like we say, it's raining outside to explain what's going on. But there's no it that's raining. If you go look for the it that's doing the raining, you'll never find it. So raining's going on. So yes, and insofar as that is an explanation and a way of the mind tracking experience, it's wonderful. The trouble is we believe it. That's the trouble. We confuse idea of pillow with the actual experience. And so realization is just the realization that... There's, you know, a whole set of experiences, thoughts, emotions, and so forth. And then there's I, the boundary that we use to separate it from uh, everything else, and that that's imaginary. And then we can use it. But let's know what we're doing. I mean, that's the whole point, you know. So, then uh, Bill asks, Punjaji speaks of true meditation as no thought. Could you comment on this? Yes, that's correct. It's not incorrect, but we can be more precise and explore this in more detail. You'll find a lot of times 
People talk about true meditation is no thought. People talk about enlightenment is no thought or a no thought state or something like that. But let's be more technical. Meditation is freedom from the tyranny of thought. So it could be a state where literally no thought is arising. If you meditate and you become a long-term meditator and you get more and more skillful, chances are you will experience periods of time where no thought is arising. I call them clarity experiences. And I remember very clearly the first time this happened to me as a meditator. I'm meditating away, meditating away, and suddenly there is no thought arising in my mind. And I said, oh, this is a clarity experience. (laughs) There was the thought. So it could be that. But if you get the idea that this is the aim or object of meditation, uh, then you're actually spinning your wheels and you're creating a lot of unnecessary problems for yourself because it's not necessary that no thought is arising in that sense of being in a state of samadhi, of a prolonged state where no thoughts are arising. Every single thought arises and disappears on its own. It self-liberates. You don't have to make any thought go away. In fact, here's another thing you can test. Try to hang on to a thought. I don't mean an image now. I'm talking specifically about a verbalized thought, like uh, your birthday. So my birthday is December 20th, okay? The uh, Tibetans describe it as drawing on water. You know, as fast as you draw on water, it dissolves, it evaporates. So every thought is arising and disappearing. And between the two thoughts, there's no thought. Now that is normally a very, very brief moment. And we overlook it, first of all, because it's so brief. And second of all, because we're always trained to look for something. We're waiting for the next thought to come. And so we're constantly skipping over this very precious moment. Precious moment Because in a moment of no thought, there can be no delusion. Only thought causes delusion. Experience, sensation stuff cannot fool you. Only thought fools you. A sensation is just a sensation. What you think about it makes all the difference. If you have a pain in your head and you think, oh, it's just a headache and it's a tumor and you don't pay any attention to it, you'll die. On the other hand, if it's just a headache and you think, oh my God, this is it, this is the big one, I got the tumor now, I'm, you know, then you're going to have a lot of unnecessary suffering if it turns out to be just a headache. So it's the thought about what's going on that fools us, not the actual experience. Experience cannot fool us. So this is a very precious moment. All enlightenment, all realization, all awakening happens in a moment where there is no thought. It might be that fast. It might be a flame being blown out by a Zen master and for a moment the student sees the flame has disappeared and in that moment there's no story about it and boom the reality of what's happened just strikes home. Or it might be a long time you go into samadhi. You've been practicing meditation, deep concentration practice in the caves and Himalayas and you go into samadhi for, I don't know, they claim they go in for 30 days or something, you know. That won't necessarily guarantee that enlightenment will happen. You might just spend 30 days zonked out. So, but enlightenment only happens in that moment where there is no thought present, there is no delusion present. So, 
That is the import of talking about meditation is no thought. But meditation, normally speaking, is about being free from thought. And that means no distraction by thought. So you can sit there and attention can be focused on your breath and then thoughts arising and passing and it's not distracting you. It's not that you aren't aware that thoughts are there, but you're not lost in the thought. It could just be choiceless awareness. It could be not focused on anything and thought is arising and passing and you're not lost in the thought. In fact, you could have the thoughts, the primary focus in your mind and not be lost in them. For instance, when you're doing your taxes, which is coming up. This is a wonderful time for spiritual practice, by the way. (laughs) Sit down and do your taxes and watch all the stuff that goes around doing the taxes, all the stories and everything that are created about how, oh, the government's ripping me off, where's all my money going, it's just paying for wars, and this, and and then all the little things. Yeah, well, I don't really have to report that. I mean, that was just the offense. <laughs> I mean, after all, they ripped me off so bad. I... <laughs> and this is what the mind is good for, by the way, doing taxes. It's excellent for that. But all this other stuff is extraneous. And you can watch that and play with that. But that's the whole <clears throat> business. True meditation is, if we want to really be technical, it's not being distracted by thought, not being caught up in thought, and not believing whether you're sitting in some formal posture or not. Okay, so then... Uh, Joel? Yes? Could you also describe it as just watching the thoughts as opposed to you know, not being distracted, just watching it's what's going exactly on? It's the same thing. When you are watching thought and recognizing its thought, then you are not caught up in it. That is sort of the definition of watching thought in the spiritual context. Okay, um... Do you foresee a mass awakening at this time? And if so, please elaborate. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, come on, guys. Look at the world. What is going on in the world? Come on. This is an idea going around. I must say, you know, I think it's very, very romantic. People move in certain circles. And lots of things are happening within their circle. And then they project that this must be happening all over the world. I mean, I know exactly how this works. During the 60s, I was a Marxist revolutionary, you know, in San Francisco. And everybody I knew was a Marxist revolutionary. And it seemed like the revolution was happening right there before our eyes. In fact, our little collective, we had a meeting. And now we've been in business for a year, so it's a long time when you're in your 20s. You know, you have a lot of experience after a year. But we had a meeting, and we took a poll. Do you think the revolution is coming within the next 10 years or not? Half the people in the, in the room thought it was coming in the next 10 years. I thought maybe 20 years. But, you know, here you are in San Francisco, in the hotbed of revolution. So you think everything is happening this way. Well, there's this idea... It seems to come from Marin County, which is a, a hotbed of gurus, and you know, everybody's waking up. A mass awakening is sweeping the earth. But you know, I don't know. If you just have to turn on the news a little bit, and I, I don't think a mass awakening is sweeping the earth, frankly. But I would also say this: Look, there's a lot of paradoxes involved when we talk about this, because, see, one of the points of waking up is to realize there's no one to wake up. There's no one to be deluded. What does it mean there's a mass waking up? I mean, that's from the perspective of a delusion. No one's ever woken up. 
There's never been anyone to wake up. So what does that mean? Or you could put it this way. When you wake up, when you're free and liberated, everybody is. I mean, there's nobody in delusion. You look around and there's nobody in samsara. Where do you see anybody in samsara? Where do you see anything wrong? So what then does mass awakening mean? Or you could look at another way, which is the way I like to look at it, which is to make use of a story. You know, I love stories. I came out of Hollywood. I did that for a living, making stories. This is what the human race is about. From a mystic's point of view, it's a great adventure. And it's the same consciousness realizing itself in all these different forms. And in a certain sense, only human beings can do this. This is why God invented human beings. Not because human beings are better than cats or dogs or something, but because only human beings can get deluded. So God had to create a creature that could be deluded in order to get a creature that could wake up. To play hide-and-seek, you have to have somebody go hide. You can't play hide-and-seek unless somebody goes and hide. Then you can seek them, and then you have fun. So if everybody did wake up you know, in the next 10 or 20 years, it's over. That's the end of humanity. We do something different, but that's it. So I wouldn't be in a great rush for everyone to wake up if you enjoy this, you know, this particular game. Okay. Two more here. Uh, do you have a practice? Uh, yes, I can answer that quickly. First of all, I practice whatever I'm teaching. So right now in the practitioners group, we're doing a practice of meditative reading where we, everybody chooses a text they want to read, whatever one, you know, from any tradition. It could be the Tao Te Ching, could be the Gospels, could be the Bhagavad Gita, whatever. And the idea is to spend the time we normally spend meditating, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever, but you spend that reading and you prepare You get into a meditative state, and then you read very slowly, and you really try to absorb the wisdom of the text beyond just the mental level. Really absorb it, and then conclude with a meditation. So you're doing deep reading in little bits rather than doing a lot of speed reading the way we tend to in this culture, right? So I do that. Everybody else is doing that. I do that. If we go on a retreat and we're doing very beginning concentration practice on the breath, I do that. Why? Because I want to know experientially what's going on so when the meditation session is over and somebody raises their head and says you know I'm having trouble with that I know what they're talking about I'm usually having trouble with that myself I'm not that great a meditator frankly and when I'm meditating I also then remember oh yeah that was a problem I had you know and then I can give some advice from experience I'm not just talking you know from something long ago so I always stay very close with my students when I'm teaching and I you know do those practices I also sometimes practice just for the fun. There are some meditations, it's like a spiritual vacation. Uh, You can just go into states of bliss for a while. It's great. And so I do that sometimes. And then I also sometimes have to practice to stay ahead of my students. I started off, if you read my book, I had very little experience in meditation. So one of the things I had to do in the beginning is learn all these meditative techniques. I went to these Tibetan lamas in L.A. and studied meditation with them and, uh, you know, other ways. Some of my students became much better meditators than me. And they'd come and tell me what's going on and say, oh, really? What are you doing? Let me go off and meditate here. And I'd have to scurry off and do three months of some, you know, refined practice to know what they're talking about. So uh, it's in response to my students in any case, usually. Now, the very last question, what is love? 
let me try to leave you with uh, a, a context in which to think about it from a mystical point of view. Because love, particularly in our language, is a word that has so many meanings. You know, I mean, it means everything from falling in love and eroticism and all that to, you know, love of God and love of your dog and, you know, all those sorts of things. So how can we look at it from a mystic's point of view? And I think from a mystic's point of view, the simplest definition is love is bliss in motion. That's the one I would pick. And if we think of the ground state of consciousness as being bliss, it's just pure bliss. That's just like consciousness in dreamless sleep, when nothing is going on. Consciousness without form. It's not like blissful like a lot of emotion. It's blissful in the sense that space is blissful. It's awesome. It has this silence, this stillness, this completely non-judgmental quality. Anything can arise in it. Anything can pass through it. It can't be affected in any way. It can't be hurt. You can light fires in it. You can shoot off guns. You can wave swords around. It can't be cut. It can't be burned. Nothing. It's just this pure, pure, empty bliss, but empty in a in a rich sense, uh, empty, but in the sense of potential, the potential for everything. And, and now this is a kind of a story here, a kind of a myth, but this is the best way not to explain it. And then it needs to express itself. It needs to inform itself to know what it is. Otherwise, there's nothing there. So it, if it wants to know what it is, it informs itself. And in the movement of informing itself, that movement is a flow of love. And again, this is something we experience in our own lives. When we have a pure motivation for any sort of artistic, creative endeavor, we love to do it. I'm not talking about once you start, people start offering you money. That complicates it. But when you're just, you know, a kid. I've said this a number of times, but it's such a wonderful example. I once saw an episode of, oh God, what's the name of that show? Um, Candid Camera. And they uh, had a, a pediatrician's office and they had a little waiting room, and they brought in kids, and then they left them alone in there with music playing. And, and then all these kids, they listen, and they just start dancing. <laughs> all these little kids, you know. And by the way, have you never gone to a concert or something, and how the little kids run up and dance in front of everybody? I mean, you would die, do you know what I mean? You say, I couldn't get them to dance in front of a thousand people. They don't care. They have no self-consciousness, you see. So they're just doing it. Why? Is there some... A survival value in that? No. They do it because they love to do it. So that's what love is. Love is this movement out of bliss. It's bliss in motion. Because it loves to do it. It just loves to do it. And it appreciates what it does. It loves what it does. It loves to do it and it loves what's happening. It's just all one thing. And then finally, when love encounters suffering... It just transforms into compassion, naturally. It's selfless, so it's giving. It's giving of the cosmos in this great cosmic dance, and when it sees suffering, it's a particular form of giving. It's the giving of the relief of that suffering. It's all very natural. It's not a big mystery. And if we look at our own lives, see where love comes from. See where compassion comes from. Trace them back. Yeah. Well, does an enlightened per- how does a, an enlightened person uh, handle personal loss, grief, or death of somebody, or uh, 
Is there any difference in the way that an enlightened person would handle that yes. as opposed to being the... I'll speak from my experience, quote unquote here. The difference is freedom. So I don't have any way I'm supposed to react when something I love dies. The last thing that died that I was close to was my a little uh, orange cat, Madeline. And I just boo-hoo-hooed for a day or so. Boo-hoo-hoo. She was my little okie-dokie little pokey cat. <laughs> yeah. She was an angel. You know, sort of a not, well, that's too strong. <laughs> she was my angel. My mother died, and I applauded. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, not because I was glad she had died. No, but the way she died in that situation, she was 93 years old. She had suffered oh, a fall, and her hip had been fractured, and she had spent some time in a nursing home, which she hated, and, and she got back to her house, but she had to walk around with a walker, do you know what I mean? And she couldn't get out anymore. She was totally reliant on other people, you know. She just was coming to the point where she hated life. And she had always lived her life on her terms, completely, absolutely. And so at the end, she had one little thing she liked. Uh, she lived in Mexico at the end of her life, and just a half a block away was a restaurant, her favorite restaurant. She'd go there every Sunday, pretty expensive restaurant. She'd go there, and she'd have a margarita, and she'd have a Sunday meal there. That was a big highlight of her life. And I got a postcard from her, and it said, it was called um, Sierra Nevada, I think, yeah. And I said, what's happened? Sierra Nevada, their chef's been fired. The food was terrible last Sunday. The next thing I know, I get a call from her doctor who I'd met on a previous trip down there saying, your mother checked herself into the hospital this morning and uh, she says she wants to die and she's got pain in her stomach. I said, you know, there's nothing wrong with the pain in your stomach that a little uh, mylanta won't cure, but she says she's going to die. So I said, well, tell her to wait until my brother and I get down there. At least do that. And if she wants to die, that's okay. But at least hang on and wait, and we'll be down there in a few days. So I started scrambling around to get flights, and he lived on the East Coast. He was doing that. And, you know, by the time we got down there, she'd gone. And, and oh, and then she told the last friend who visited her, uh, she said, you know, I'm tired of this life. I want to see what's on the other side. Now, she died on her terms. You know, and she never listened to my brother and I. Why should she start now? <laughs> so it was not a sad occasion. I mean, it was, you know. Well, a child, like, killed violently or, I mean, especially children, it seems like it's more feeling of loss. Well, certainly. That's what I say. It's all dependent on the situation. So there's no correct way to grieve or to uh, respond to death. It's always going to be on every situation. But this is true of life led in freedom. We do have some conditioning that we carry with us, and as long as the conditioning is serving us, that's fine. It's like automatic pilot. But the difference is, if you are enlightened, it's like you're flying in a plane on automatic pilot. And anytime you want, you can override the automatic pilot and take charge. This is a very crude analogy, because there's no one there to do all this, but... It's like that. Whereas somebody under delusion, they're flying an automatic pilot and they're headed for a mountain and they, oh, oh, because the conditioning is locked in. There's no freedom. So they have to feel this. And then if they don't feel this way, you know, then they feel guilty. But it's a question of freedom. That's the only difference. It's a question of freedom. And so what you're doing is what you want to do. I wanted to grieve for my cat. Didn't cause me suffering. That was the nature of the love I had for that cat. 
the nature of the love I had for my mother was admiration. So her death didn't cause me suffering either. So this is the point. It's not doing anything different than you would do now. It's just not being constrained and being in self-conflict about what you're doing. Is that helpful? Yeah, thank you. Yes. How do you reconcile a relationship like a marriage with the non-duality of enlightenment? <laughs> How do you reconcile a relationship like marriage with non-duality? Well, this is what, look, non-duality, again, it's not the ultimate, ultimate teaching, even though it's a high teaching, because if you take non-duality as something that excludes duality, it's not true non-duality. Then you're stuck in a duality, right? So, you know, the best way to answer these questions for me is to go back to stories. This is why I'm a big believer in the Bible. See, God is sitting up there, everything's hunky-dory, and it's bored to death, right? (laughs) Bored to death. So what are we going to do? Why don't we split, and hey, let's have a man and a woman. We'll have two, see? And then, then we can have a relationship. But let's make this really interesting. Let's put something in the man the woman doesn't understand, can never understand, and put something in the woman that the man doesn't understand, can never understand. And then we'll put them together and see what happens. Wow! I mean, this is endlessly entertaining. There's no end to this one. So, it's still one thing doing this, but um, it's having fun. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for your words this morning. Uh, you covered a lot of ground, and you did it very well. And I enjoyed your words, and especially the wordless part of it. Uh, there's a thing that keeps jumping out at me, so it must have importance to me. And that is uh, two people. One man comes to the other and asks the question, what is the way of the Tao? And the other answers, and it means neither of them know. Yeah. So <coughs> let me retell that story, okay? Louder, please. Louder? So uh, there, <laughs> there are two uh, sages. Let's make them sages. I like to dress it up. This is, by the way, you know, how stories change. See, there's a simple story, and then the next person has to tell it, dress it up a little bit, and, you know. But the two sages discussing the Tao, and the first one comes and asks the other one, what is the Tao? (laughs) Now, wasn't there a moment there where your mind didn't know, blank, no thought, when you were waiting for the punchline, right? Wasn't there a moment? I showed you directly the Tao. You missed it this time. That's, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, God is endlessly patient. You didn't get it? Well, we'll, we'll get more opportunities. Okay. I think that's it for this morning. (laughs) So thank you for all being so patient. And as we uh, went through all this, thank you, Bill, for the question.
So, uh, you're welcome to hang around, have some uh, tea, uh, check out the library, and until we see you again, peace to you all.